Hello, and welcome to Femme On Poetry Theater. I'm your host, Ada McCartney. Each episode features an interview with a fellow poet wherein we exchange news, share work, speak on inspiration and dialogue about the process of etymological transformation. Thank you for joining us. Hello and welcome to the Poets Theater. My name is Ada McCartney and I'm here with Amy Bobeda. I met, had the pleasure of meeting Amy in grad school. Um, thanks to the pandemic, actually, we were placed in an online pedagogy class together. Um, and I was delighted by the fact that Amy was one of the first people, you were one of the first people in grad school to um, really attend to my writing and my thoughts with the seriousness and the attention and the questions that I had expected to see when I got to grad school. And so I think that was maybe at the heart of our our early bonding. Um, so welcome to Poets Theater, Amy. I'm delighted to be here with you and talk all things poetry. <laughs> Thank you, Ada. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you for asking me uh, on to Poets Theater for this discussion today. Yeah. Oh, those memories of, ironically, <laughs> the class that I now teach. Indeed. Um, and, and like, oh, you have me thinking so much about the expectations that you have in grad school and how those are never met. Um, and I often wonder if that's what grad school is about. If that's Learning really... to adjust and live with unmet expectations, adjust your own expectations. Yeah, adjust your own expectations. And too, I don't know about you, but for me, so much of it was learning how to meet expectations yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially Which when they diverged from what I thought they would be. Yeah, and that becomes so much of the, quote, on-the-job training for um, a future in poetry and academics and writing where it really is self-driven in in so many ways so anyway I'm so thrilled to be here uh this is my first podcast ever I'm so thank you I'm so relieved it's with you (laughs) (laughs) um I've been listening to the somewhat new podcast um Close Readings, and uh, Lindsay Turner a few weeks ago was the guest, and uh, they were talking about the um, the shampoo poem, the Emily Bishop shampoo poem, and Lindsay was like, this is my first podcast. What a great way to start the new year, and uh, I just love her, and I love her poetry so much. Um, at summer writing program this past summer she read this really amazing poem about mice Mm. and it was just it was just like mice in the house and I don't know what it was about it that was so like present and charming and there was this childlike quality of you know children's stories about mice or something but I was like I will 
value you as a top poet forever. So it was very exciting for me to hear her talking about her first podcast in preparing for my first podcast. You were listening to her very first podcast experience. That's beautiful. Yes. Yes. A poem about mice. All I can think about is Tom and Jerry, which is probably not the mouse vibe of the poem. I would read a Tom and Jerry poem. I think there should be more poems about mice. Oh, absolutely. Um, Mice and perhaps roaches and bugs. I read a really good... I wish I could remember who or where I read this, but I recently read a poem about cockroaches that both made my skin crawl and um, delighted me to no end. You know, I'm going to find lived... it for the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> they've lived longer than us. They will outlive us. Cockroaches deserve poems too. Speaking of poems and maybe cockroaches, what's your poetry origin story? Like where, I know your parents are both artists, but not necessarily in the medium of words. So how do you come, how do you come to poetry? Yes, words are not so much their forte. Um, My father is quite a good writer, but um, they are both ceramicists. So 3D media um, and painting, my mother's a painter, have always been their niche. Um, So I guess for me, it was all about writing and textile art from a pretty young age. um, I was very interested in books and book making. Uh, I think my mom still has a book that I made that was like at the book fair at the Capitola Mall (laughs) in the first grade um, with this nice spine that was bound in tape and um, I was always very, very interested in storytelling and in telling stories. I would write weird, surreal stories about like burritos coming to life and like hunting people. Um, I really loved burritos as a kid. Uh, Just all of these stories that had elements of magical realism and were very much about objects and environment and like my immediate needs. I wrote, I wrote a story once called, I wish I had a fish tank. Um, And that may have been what was turned into the book. And this story was about this young girl who longed for a fish tank so she could have fish. Uh, And in the end, she's, gifted a fish tank so uh, I wrote I wrote that story and then my grandmother got me a fish tank and I think I must have been six and that to me was this very real and direct experience of oh you could tell a story and it can become real Mm. Um, so that was a huge interest when I was a kid which then sort of turned into storytelling through theater, which I know is something we both have in common as part of our sort of poetics origin and part of our poetics practice. And then somehow I didn't write a lot of poetry as a kid. I didn't understand that a prose poem is just an unfinished short story often. 
I now value that in my daily life as a major prose poem writer and a lover of the prose poem as sort of this snapshot of a moment or many moments or a, a possibility. But um, I was taking this class at UC Berkeley and it was this horrible, horrible class, probably like classes that we have both taught of like mm-hmm. total rudimentary, how to write a college essay. And I'd written this essay about fads and I thought it was very clever. And it was this whole essay to get my writing certificate so I could go to graduate school, which I probably didn't need to do anyway. And the teacher who had been teaching that class forever, I think has his PhD in education, just very clear cut, business as usual, let's do this and get out. Read my work and was like, you're not really in this. And I was like, I think it's kind of clever. And he was like, if you want to be a poet, just go be a poet. But if you want to write for Amazon, call me. And I was like, what? And I was going through so many crises at the time in my life with my health, I'd had Lyme disease for like eight years at that point. Um, And I was like really struggling with work in theater and sort of like, what am I doing? I just want to write, but no, I don't really want to write Amazon copy. (laughs) And I went outside and the class was at a church um, in, in Berkeley near the campus. And I just like went outside and there was this angel statue and I sat down on this stone bench next to this angel statue and I just sat there and I cried like half an hour. And then I think right after that, I enrolled in a poetry class and I was like, you know, I guess maybe I should just do it. (laughs) Um, And it's funny, I talked about the Elizabeth bishop poem earlier but a big a big playful time in poetry for me was working on um sarah rules dear elizabeth i don't know Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that play but it's uh, a staging of the letters between elizabeth bishop and robert lowell and i worked on that show my job was my job was to transform the actor playing Robert Lowell every night from a young Lowell to an older Lowell, which really just involved some very quick hairdressing and some washout hair color. Uh, So I worked on that and I convinced everyone backstage to write nightly haikus. And we were writing haikus sort of out of the relationship of Lowell and Bishop Um, in our staging of the production, the walls sort of rained water. There was, yeah, and the room flooded. And so there were a lot of haikus about water and sort of, I think, backstage haikus. And I really started to fall in love with this idea of like the backstage poem, which is something I really love to write now too. Um, 
but sort of this idea of how you could take this very simple, accessible, yet complex form and anyone backstage could take a few minutes to capture the moment that they're experiencing, whether that's with the language of the play or, you know, the snack that they're eating from the free snack basket or, um, you know, the book that they're reading while they're waiting for their quick change or whatever. So I guess those are some pieces that fit together to become my poetry origin story. There are two really, three really mythic moments in that story that stand out to me. Um, the first being that you literally brought yourself a fish tank by writing about it. Um, the second, that moment where you walk out of the classroom in the church, sit down next to an angel, have a good cry. And just like what I'm hearing is at the end of that cry, you let it all out, laid it at that angel's feet and just kind of re-settled into that knowledge that you're a poet and decided to go do it. And then you take poetry and you bring it into the literal theater, backstage into the theater, and you inspire a group of people and I, and I a, a group of backstage seasoned theater professionals to write nightly haiku. Um, and I think those those three moments, I, I hope they make it into the autobiography. I hope they continue to like smolder in your poetry origin mythos because that's pretty epic. Thank you. Thank you, Ada. Do you have yeah, any of I'm those thinking... poems? The haiku. Do you have any of the backstage haiku? Did you make a book of them? No, no, I didn't make a book of them. There were definitely photos that I'm sure I have somewhere because we would pin them onto the call board. Um, and I think, it, you know, maybe I'm romanticizing it as as a thing that we did when I was 24. <laughs> but um, it was this really beautiful moment where we would sort of all inspire one another to play off of each other's words and language when normally in that environment, so much of so much of your creative work isn't seen or isn't attached to you. Um, and so much of your language is professional language or a lack of language because you're backstage and you're not supposed you're to supposed talk. to be invisible or yeah or it's truncated discussions on headset and not everyone is on headset so there's also that dynamic of conversations are happening among two or three people as the show is being called and then the wardrobe crew they're like talking in their own language because they're not on headset and then there's someone who's sort of connecting in between both parties in a way that creates a very specific language um, and, a, and a different poetics than say everyone in the green room 
writing a little haiku and pinning it on. I think some of the actors wrote haikus too. Who are speaking somebody else's language for the duration of the show. And so we have poetry coming in to bridge and sort of cross the boundaries between all of these different types of languages being being spoken in a single play. Totally. And when you're spending hours and hours, eight shows a week, six or eight weeks doing a play about poetry, how do you not start writing poems? That's a, that is a question for the ages. All my theater friends out there, uh, are you writing poems when you do plays about poetry? <laughs> and if so, send them in. I'd love to see them. Um, I mean, I guess similarly, if you're working at a Shakespeare festival, mm. do you start talking in iambic pentameter? Or without realizing sonnet, email yeah. sonnets. I hope so. I hope so too. So where you mentioned that you're listening to this new podcast, what else is new and news and inspiring or news that's so uninspiring that it's noteworthy? (laughs) (laughs) News that is so uninspiring that it is noteworthy. Um, I just finished watching Be Foreigners. I don't know that. Um, It's Norwegian. There were two seasons of it. It was originally an HBO show until HBO broke a deal with or made another deal with somebody else. I don't really, I don't really know how HBO works. Um, But it was this great Norwegian show that was maybe in 2017 maybe a little later they did two seasons and it's this whole concept of time travel in that people become um time migrants so people will appear from their place of origin but from a different time. So there you're getting a lot of Vikings, which they term people of Nordic descent because of, because Vikings in the series is not an appropriate term. So people of Nordic descent from the Middle Ages, um, one of the- Will just show up in like the 21st century? Yeah, they all appear in the water and there's like something with a time hole in a body of water. You get like 19th century men marrying modern women and sort of like, what does that mean in how you raise a family? All of these things as this really interesting conversation, first about religion, because you're dealing with earlier pagan religions and then you're sort of dealing with the rise of Christ um, in some of the later be foreigners who arrive in modern times Um, and it's sort of this really amazing 
sci-fi way to talk about how we don't manage refugees. Um, Norwegian, okay. Yeah. Um, And what I love the most about it is the very first episode is about menstruation and the very last episode is about menstruation. In um, <laughs> the in the first episode, there's the first uh, the first time migrant police officer uh, is this woman, and she's great because she sort of does everything that might be sexy but isn't. Like she's got a lot of scenes in her underwear, but they're like boy shorts, and she's belching. But it's, so it's all of these sort of like confusing things, asking the viewer to think about how we view women and how we might view women from a different time. And um, she's from the Crusades era and mm. she's she's partnered with a modern cop who is struggling with addiction to these eye drops which are given to people when they time migrate so that they um i think they're supposed to be some sort of benzo so it's just to like calm them as they migrate into present day and um she has him pull over the car and she gets out of the car and she goes and she just rips this clump of moths um off of off of a rock maybe or off of something and she just shoves it down the front of her pants and so if anyone has read (laughs) Robin Wall Kimmermer's book about moths you would immediately know that um, a more ancient and traditional form of the menstrual pad or sanitary napkin would be moths um and so she's got moths down her pants and and he's like you know we there are new things there are new inventions for this um and later he leaves her a box of pads um as a gift and and it's this really beautiful moment that's not actually awkward and it's so normalized and there's nothing sexual about the exchange. It's just like, here's a box of pads. I'd give them to any woman. And uh, he asks her about them and she says, it's like a kitten in her underpants after she uses a, a modern pad for the first time. So good. So good. Um, I'm never going to think about modern pads and panty liners the same way again no right <laughs> that's a right? kitten was, in my underpants a kitten in my underpants we spend so much time complaining about how uncomfortable menstrual hygiene products are i guess maybe really we tried moss we'll grab a clump of moss with some dirt still stuck on it <laughs> maybe yeah. a couple little bugs yeah, and then one of the other officers who really hates her is just like, there's moss everywhere. You've left moss everywhere. Just all of these. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, and then the last episode uh, confronts tampons. Um, oh, wow. In a pretty lovely way, sort of like juxtaposed with two timelines and 
sort of this couple and in the imagined timeline have become the king and the queen and she's using a tampon for the first time but in the real timeline they're dying oh wow and they're bleeding out um so just all of those fabulous menstrual images that I always get really excited when I can sort of explore how other cultures are dealing with menstruation in the media um so I just finished that and I loved it obviously because I'm still talking about it um and I've been reading a lot in the new year I know when you and I had talked around new years we were both like reading reading um it's a new year reading uh so I just read oh sorry I want to talk about reading but I also want to go back to this menstruation um for a moment because I know that in addition to the magical real and fairy tales menstruation is a primary component of your work as a poet um did you know that the series was so menstrually focused going in is that why you sought it out no no I had no idea um it sounded like a really great concept to me and then I watched a clip and there's this really funny clip where the um the before in our cop tries to share a sandwich with the other cop and he's like I'm gluten intolerant and and she's like, you're not superstitious, but you're afraid of like an invisible demon in bread. <laughs> you know, because of course they're coming from two different ontologies where she's like, if there's something I can't see, it's supernatural. Yeah. And he's like, I probably took a blood test. <laughs> um, <laughs> So there, and, and it was just this really wonderful moment where I was suddenly like, why am I gluten intolerant? This is really interesting to think about. An invisible demon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like what are the invisible demons in our food? What about our modern Yes. And what about our modern ontologies working? What about it isn't working? And then I was so interested in sort of how they would manage the pre-Christian and the post-Christian worldviews and sort of how they would evolve in, in the modern police procedural which essentially it's just a police procedural dealing with time hopping Um, and menstruation and and vikings and nordic everything that sounds incredible i i can't wait to check this show out it does it also then gets into pregnancy and discussions of abortion which then get very interesting when you start to deal with religion when you start to deal with men and women from different time periods um 
and the pressure that it puts on the young woman in the show who gets pregnant. Um, I'm all, I'm always curious about pregnancy stories in other cultures too, that I guess in the way that, that Hallmark, <laughs> Hallmark works of like, what are you actually trying to tell me? What's, what's the subtext of this? Um, but by the end of the series, we learned that, that it was an important pregnancy. So, but I won't spoil it too much. Okay. I, I look forward to talking more about this once I actually watch it because it sounds right up all of my alleys. Um, reading, but I'm also, I want to go back to menstruation one more time. And I think we've talked about this a little bit off air, but I, I really want to ask the question here. Um, where did menstruation come into the fold for you, knowing that it's kind of a, a central topic and also the subject of one of your two new books? Um, where, along the same lines of your poetry origin story, I know we, as women, all have a particular menstrual origin story, but I'm curious about, like, your menstrual mythos origin story, your menstrual interest origin story a little yeah. bit. Um, I couldn't tell you when I had my first period. I don't remember it at all. So many people- I thought like, everybody remembered it. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I remember many, many horrific periods since, but I do not remember uh, my menarche. Um, comforting that I'm not alone in that <laughs> yeah I know I feel much better about it too um I dealt with a lot of painful periods I dealt with a lot of amenorrhea um over the last two decades um and I couldn't get a lot of answers from people unsurprisingly doctors mm. know so little about the female reproductive system in comparison to the male reproductive system um which is far more straightforward <laughs> truth but weirdly i also couldn't get a lot of sympathy for having amenorrhea and it was something to me that always felt so wrong of like I don't care what else is going on, but if this body is meant to have a cycle and it's not cycling, something is gravely wrong. Um, and you were met with the response of like, oh, you should be grateful that you're not having all of these periods, I yes. imagine. Yes. Um, and maybe I'll read the poem about that later. But it, so. it was this situation in my in my late teens where they tried all these hormones and all these things. And then I started treatment for Lyme disease and it turns out that's what was messing up my hormones. Um, so my period came back and that was great. I took a lot of Vicodin for all of my cramps because that was a time where they still prescribed opioids for menstrual cramps, which now is probably unheard of. Um, mm. But horrific periods not a lot of conversation around them 
most people I knew were on the pill. I'm allergic to hormonal birth control. It also really freaks me out. Um, so I was always looking for these answers. And then when I had serious amenorrhea for a few years in my mid twenties, I was like something like, there's gotta be missing pieces here. Something has to change. Like, what is that? Why can't I bleed? And at the time I didn't really understand that biologically amenorrhea occurs when the body is not hospitable for pregnancy <laughs> so it was like something about my life isn't working um and I had this sort of flash of an idea to write sort of like prayers to menstruation or this begging of my body and the greater forces at work to be like, could you just tell me why I can't have a period? Or like, can you just, I just want this back. Um, and I think it was something that I didn't understand how much I missed it until I didn't have it. And, mm -hmm. and how I would still go through these like crazy hormonal changes and feel totally outside of my body but trapped in my body at the same time and none of this is normal but nobody really had anything to say about it it was like here's some bioavailable trochee hormones you know like here's some chinese herbs all of these things that just sort of like made me feel insane um i was having a really great talk with a couple folks at the writing center at school. The great thing about like once you're known as a menstrual poet is like people want to talk about their hormones <laughs> and their reproductive systems with you all the time. And we had this great conversation about the times we've taken progesterone and how insane it's made us act. And it was just this really lovely moment where we probably should have been talking about like how to use semicolons, but instead we were... <laughs> We were talking about these horrific experiences with progesterone and um, I guess to me that's a big part of making menstruation part of poetics and part of a larger conversation um, because then it can become part of conversation not just in a clinical sense um, which is exciting to me and then right before graduate school, I found Chris Knight's recording of his lecture on the Wawalock sisters, which is sort of the starting place for my book, Red Memory. And it is an Australian myth of the origin of language essentially evolving out of a menstruating sister and a sister who's just given birth post-birth fluid and sort of from these bodies that represent the entire cycle the entire reproductive cycle language emerges with no so when men I found in that, sight <laughs> with no men in sight I mean to be fair one was impregnated well, by a man um there are men at play and then they do get the rainbow snake involved and the rainbow snake is 
non-gendered. Um, and a snake is both phallic and mm-hmm. womb-like. So you get, so you sort of get everything and the rainbow snake gets involved for the language component. But um, suddenly things started to click that there has to be a deeper connection between the menstrual cycle, the reproductive cycle, sort of like this deeply powerful ability the womb has, despite its lack of rights and intense disrespect in our country and in other countries, but that there has to be a connection between that and language and perhaps why I wasn't having a period. And the curious is not the right word, but it's the one that's coming to mind. Miraculous, incredible, that in these moments of desperately wishing for menstruation, wanting that that bleeding to complete or mark the cycle of these hormone changes so that it doesn't just feel like a hormone roller coaster, you turn to language and prayer to bring it back. Yeah, and I had sort of, you know how... I think you do it in notes. I do it in Google Docs. Like just a little sketch of something. Of a like, let me put this here for later because I'm too messy to write physical mm-hmm. notes in my house. Just like put this here and maybe in six or eight months, I'll accidentally stumble upon it. Um, breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs. Yes, breadcrumbs. Gluten-free. And mm-hmm. I had sort of sketched out those notes Maybe before I quit my job, but somewhere in pre-grad there, school. pre-grad school, I sort of sketched out these notes um, because I did finally get my period in France. <laughs> of course. Um, and it was this like crazy thing of how far away do I have to get from home or from the U.S.? I guess to put my body in a relaxed enough state to have a period um which Mm. to me turned turned out to be pretty rural central france um and so i sketched these notes and then in my first poetry class with andrew schelling experimental poetry we were reading jerome rothenberg's technicians of the sacred and i was like this is what i'm in grad school for um you know reading old anthologies but only have like four reviews on amazon uh things you'd never find on your own things i wouldn't find on my own things i wouldn't find in the world of contemporary poetry mm-hmm. which is probably not a world i totally exist in which is cool and i wrote a sonnet <laughs> uh at the time it was a sonnet and it was essentially a prayer to menstruation Mm. and it was the sonnet of the menstrual process um and andrew was the one who was like you should just title it sonnet um but it it has gone through many iterations and is now in red memory and i guess to me that poem is a lot of the origin of how the book came to be sort of from this much earlier seed would you read it to us 
or read, would you read something from Red Memory? It doesn't have to be that. I would love, I'd love to have that in this moment. That's so exciting. Is that your uh, preview copy? Oh, it is. It is. My mother just sent me a picture of her copies and was like, they're all here. I just need to figure out who I bought them for. Mm. Beautiful. Okay. Beautiful response. Prayer for menstruation. Mm. Half moon, early light. Speckles egg from night. Builds a belly, iron, rust, coils, mud. Water, silt, slides into the kiln. Engorges breasts. Spurts fire wet and sanguine, scored in slip, quenching, cools, rests on Mesa's edge. All that almost was until it comes anon. Hmm. Scores in slip, quenching until it comes anon. Yeah, so it's also... Uh, like ceramics 101 how to keep your stuff from breaking in the kiln um, <laughs> it's 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 like really how to yeah how to build something um how to hand build which is pretty funny now that I read it aloud um calling in the relationship between working in clay working in flesh and working in rhyme yes well and and if you think about it, so many human origin stories, humans are born of clay. So then perhaps our infants are also born of clay. Clay and blood. Clay and blood. Clay and blood. Yeah. Would you like to read something else from Red Memory? What are you interested in? What would you like to hear today, Ada? Well, um, I'd love to hear, a, you have some really juicy prosy bits in there, but I, I also want to talk about, because our, our listeners can't see the book, but one of my favorite components of the book um, are your images and the the women that you have constructed. And I wonder if you'd, share a little bit about that as well because you've you haven't just created a book of poetry or prose you've created this amazing multimedia art book with texts and images crossing the bounds of genre and form um and i think that's really powerful thank you ada um <laughs> that's very sweet uh so Maybe if I read this prose section, it will also speak to the images that you're talking about. And then I can talk a little bit more about the images. Um, okay, so this is called Rags. Uh, for those who can't see the page, some of the text is in red. That happens a lot in the book, particularly quotes by other people are generally in red. Um, mm -hmm. And it's broken into a lot of bite-sized paragraphs, sort of 
throughout these four pages. So, rags. Scrap of cloth, early 14th century. Probably from Old Norse, brogue, shaggy tuft, slang for tampon, sanitary napkin, 1930s. On the rag, 1948. Hmm. The tongue invents a wordless sensation. The tongue invents language. The tongue inverts the street glittered in menstrual rags. Menstruation has long been veiled by a mysterious silence in our culture. In fairy tales, myths, and folk tales, this intimate female reality is concealed in the symbols and metaphors. That's from The Meat of Poetry, which is an Icelandic book on menstruation and fairy tales. Ragging the menstrual rag, shame composes on the counter. In many traditions, female initiation is channeled through rituals I cannot bear to throw away. Some women soak plastic rags in water. Pink juices feed flowers, feed cats, do a bit of skin changing. The taste of menstrual blood is a spicy form of iron. Mouthfeel mm -hmm. of birthing, everything and nothing of me and not. Four unopened pads, white squares line the green fence of the baseball field, breadcrumbs of ovulation. On the other side of earth, girls beg for the gift of a sanitary napkin. The sanitary towel was named in 1880, sanitary for health and sane. Insanity's shame, metaphors, forgotten matter, yards of red surveyor tape lick what would be mud if rain came red. I photograph trash daily on the three-mile circuit through my neighborhood, sometimes noting how garbage changes or doesn't. Sometimes I want to touch it, but never do. Somehow, I believe the earth is displaying, reclaiming these menstrual rags. Desmophoria, the ancient Greek menstrual rite, left pigs for Demeter, collecting rotting flesh of piglets, perhaps from days before or another season, a sacrifice organic trash, dinner for goddess nature. Cherry paint, circle squares, cross hatch, sidewalk in unintelligible language to the passerby. Licorice strands, decomposing silk roses fly from the cemetery up the hill, trap themselves in fallen leaves until wind speaks again. Moo. Decomposing string, aranciada rosa. Blood orange wrapper sings. I am a quarter orange sour candy crystallizing in the sun. You cannot deceive earth. You must respect earth, especially in spring when she is pregnant. Maria types on her apple 2E. Mr. Potato Head's missing ear is a womb, last thread to wisdom, which means ear in Sumerian, language of Anana, who put her ear to the ground before descending into menstrual death and resurrection. Will our trash die to resurrection, or does its redness stand as reminder of aversion to the blood stains on pants, sheets, and dresses? Blood that stains our streets in egotistical transgressions. A shoebox falls apart among the prairie dog nations, a red river snake shimmering in grassless wonder. I wonder why no one picks up their trash. I pause outside the bookstore. A man asks, I've got to know, is this the Reed Queen or the Red 
queen. The owner bites her lip. Red, she says, sliding his receipt towards him. There's a certain instinct in composition to pre-visualize the hieroglyphic cave-painted woman popular in Paleolithic art, as well as carvings of the Neolithic period. How is it? How is this litter of me and not of me, I ask? Focus always, breasts, bellies, and vulvas, because, as Maria Gambuta says, the goddess was birth, death, regeneration. The garter is a rag, the ribbon a rag. Why are auto shop rags fundamentally red? Plucked <laughs> from the dance floor. Edward usurped the garter from Elizabeth. Honi sui qui mal i pense, exclaimed a secret order, reversing gender. Edward, a queen, Elizabeth's England's great-breasted king, at her majesty's pleasure, clouding notions of gender. In the legend of the Green Knight, Sagawin tested by lust and death, the garter, one temptation to too many. Gawain bleeds from a nick on the neck. That's for the garter, the giant says. Shame be to him to think evil the menstrual rag. Mm. The more I practice this ritual, the more I find I am honoring that which abhors me. I've never understood the carelessness of litter and now give it a personal place of meaning as a gesture towards the collective attitudes of menstruation, birth, and the female form. Everyone forgets the first alchemists in labs doing work, doing laundry, making gold from lead, were women making clothes from rags, making children from the belly of earth, turning lead mm. into the gold of living. The monarchal girl takes us back to first creation. Time before time, tethered to earth, she bleeds, and we cut ourselves, join hands, and travel to the sky together. To let her go, we forget from where we came, this place of soil littered in wrappers. Amidst the trash and rubble, she screams, the Paleolithic goddess was the creatrix! <laughs> we mistake wind, rubber, greasing asphalt, brush, caught and spokes, the absence of silence. She's really asking us, is the way we're living the best way to live? Que vida que vemos? When Spider Woman falls to earth, she must open her eyes to avoid psychosis. To red garbage filling streets, blood in sheets. The sil to silence the monarchal girl, rain comes black, white, toxic, oil, greed, seeding silence. The fate of Briar Rose is prophesied by a red crustacean emerging from the bath of an infertile queen. Cursed by nature, the young girl turns a rusty key, pricks herself on the third fate spindle as the castle falls asleep. They dream in ovulatory splendor while impatient men die in the bramble trying to get in. The monarchy of first creation cannot be overthrown, no matter how overgrown the briar. In sleep, small death, orgasm of slumber until we wake to dream again spinning. Three red bottle caps, and I'm supposed to flush my blood, but instead mm -hmm. it spills on the kitchen floor, and I wonder if the landlady will notice the tinge of pink that remains when I am gone. And I wonder how many menstrual rags remain outside my window. Mm. So, as you can hopefully deduce from that passage... I really started to think about trash, specifically red trash, and 
how that might be connected to menstrual shame, particularly in modern culture. Um, not, not more ancient menstrual taboos that were designed to protect menstruants. Um, but this whole relationship that we have with garbage, there's so much of it, but you can't put your garbage cans out too early. Otherwise your HOA is going to get mad at you. But you know, if you're in New York, all your trash is on the side of the street. So we have this thing of trash being so visible, but secretive at the same time, which to me in ways feels very similar to this complicated relationship we have with menstruation, with menstrual products, with disposing of menstrual products that I was like, what if I start photographing red trash? And I had this idea and it was still very early, early COVID lockdown. So most of my life was like walking or running around my small town. And I had this idea and 20 minutes later, I went outside and there was a red bath mat crumpled in the driveway. And I was like, okay, guess I'm doing this. Um, and I still do. I, I took a picture of a piece of red trash this morning on my way to the grocery store. I still take pictures of red garbage everywhere. Um, and red paint, particularly like surveyor paint, mm. because there's so much of that here. And that was not a thing as much in the Bay Area. And I'm always fascinated by it here and I don't really understand it but like people will paint over the snow for water lines and all sorts of things to me that seem really crazy because this is Colorado and in two days the snow will melt um and then to me it's like what is this like a bullshit job ploy of like gotta get out there in the snow gotta <laughs> better go gotta paint, paint that snow red yeah I gotta paint that snow red um <laughs> Or hot pink. There's a lot of hot pink in my neighborhood. But mm. um, I had all these photos of menstrual garbage. And I was like, what if there were bodies menstruating this trash? So the images you were talking about came about after that. And they are bodies that are sort of birthing this garbage that in many of the images, um, except the ear, I talk about uh Mr. Potato Head's ear that was a great find that has a body drawn around it so it becomes a uterus um or a bladder it also looks like a bladder um but it really made me think about how we see trash as gross or other people you know, you know like we have friends who see trash as things to collect mm -hmm. um and that that's such a huge part of the no waste movement but I sort of had this hope that eventually it would sort of open this bigger question I have of like why do we litter why do we find garbage abhorrent but we're okay putting it on the street mm. and why is that also how we feel about the menstruating body that reminds me of this sort of corollary between the sort of afterthought that menstruation and menstruators seem to be in the medical context um, and our 
cultural social inability to or refusal to create an infrastructure that consciously and intelligently deals with refuse waste the byproducts of being human um and i think i think that's an interesting infrastructure corollary between maybe in medicine culture and, and trash i love that you i love that you illustrate it i love that you humanize the pieces of red trash that you find by drawing literal humans into the into the scene um and was I this weird thing all of it. Mm-hmm. that you like the trash was part of someone because the like the trash was a wrapper that fed someone something or the trash was a bow on a present someone got and so much of it speaks to this like distancing it's probably the enlightenment's fault i've been thinking a lot the last few days about how everything is the enlightenment's fault um Mm. but it's more complicated than that i'm sure but this whole idea of like it's used throw it away um it's not a value throw it away or like a carelessness of not noticing like all of the lost gloves like where do all the lost gloves go Mm. always finding always finding single gloves here um I know you that wouldn't be a thing where you live but here always always the single gloves and I'm like socks a lot of socks here yeah yeah and sort of this lack of awareness where our attention is somewhere else or all these things but that I'm very interested in the fact that these discarded items had a life before they were discarded and now they have a new life attempting to integrate into the environment which in the case of most pieces of trash is not a great future for anyone involved no it just involves sitting in a roadway or on a sidewalk or somewhere until i don't know it decomposes gets moved elsewhere an animal chokes on it yeah yeah i mean if it takes if it takes a uh, standard medical grade face mask 450 years to decompose, I can only imagine how long it takes a candy wrapper. Right. Um, or a chair. <laughs> or a chair. Yes. So, you know, those are, those were all things that I was thinking about as I'm exploring this because I'm really interested in how the collective relationship to menstruation sort of pollutes to use a to use a mental mm. word pollutes um collective consciousness and then we're sort of like enacting all of the bloodletting in really horrific violent ways as opposed to more traditional routes of like bleeders bleed they return their blood to the earth we can have peace we can have peace um, and I get that that perhaps is like naive and simple, but on a mythic plane, it works. Is it? And that's like, that's what I'm interested in. What works on 
unconscious planes, mythic planes, because then there's a chance that it could work in this reality in the day to day. Um, but I, I, you also have me thinking about the fact that it completely correlates with a huge lack of access to public restrooms across mm-hmm. the country. Public restrooms, public trash cans, it, they just don't exist here. And I didn't, I, I guess I didn't realize how much they don't exist here until 2017 when I traveled to Japan, where literally every corner has a free public restroom, often with a shower and trash cans. But but not just trash cans. It's like your whole little recycle compost trash unit. Every bus stop, every street corner, every everywhere. Um, and people actually sort their items into these things as a as a rule, as a just like cultural practice. It's just it's just a thing. And it didn't. It blew my mind that as a you know thirty year old, I was just realizing how much we don't have that here. We don't. We don't at all. Um, yeah, I was with Stephanie, our mutual friend Stephanie, in um, we were in Arvada the other day, just checking out Old Town Arvada. Um, and they have one of the public toilets. I can't remember. They have a cute name, and I think they were designed in maybe Portland, but it's sort of this steel self-contained oh but the top is open air um but they're self-contained so that they have like a cleaning closet within them Ooh, and they were designed and patented to be sold across the country because they're super affordable and they're permanent and they're easy to use and i think they don't they don't in- courage mess in a way that other styles would because they're so easy to clean um and that they're just like really easy for a city's infrastructure to manage and they had one in arvada and i was like wow boulder could use a few of these um but it was so cool to me to see one here in colorado um let's get some in phoenix (laughs) yeah yeah, um, I'll have to look it up and email you what they're called. But um, I don't know. It's such a huge part of public health, mm. public safety. It's like a place to go to the bathroom, to change your menstrual rag, yeah. to wash your face. Yeah. So Red Memory is not your only book out now. You have a second book that is out and I want to talk a little bit about that and there'll be links to it in the show notes. So everybody, please go buy Amy's books. They're phenomenal. What I am curious about is as you've published these two books, where's the work now taking you? Is it continuing along this trajectory or have you, where's it taking you and how is it evolving? Oh, where is it taking me and how is it evolving? Um, I continue to write about the same things. Uh, in a women's circle the other night, someone was talking about how we focus on the same things because that's where our trauma is. And I was like, maybe, but I don't know. Um, 
I don't know. I think a lot of writers continue to write about the same things in similar forms because that's how we're learning and that's how we keep learning and keep discovering. I don't know. Maybe you can speak to that about your own practice, but um, I'm finishing up edits on what I'm considering the quote unquote follow up to Red Memory, which is a little more about lunarchy which would be a government governed by the moon um where we would oscillate power where, where we would take the three days of dark moon off um where for three days capitalism would take a break i'm not saying end it would just rest because we need rest um and that that book very much plays off of both Red Memory and What Bird Are You, which is my second book, which the day we are recording, it has begun pre-sales, Hello. which is so exciting and so terrifying to me at the same time. That book is much more traditional poetry. Um, Hilarious. It, yeah, they're very funny poems. Like if you've ever wanted a funny poem about the quirky Shakespeare Museum in Moss Landing, California, it's in that book. Um and that in a way that Red Memory was very narrowed on landscape and environment of, I'm looking at trash that I see every day in a three mile radius. What Bird Are You is sort of zoomed out on that. There's an essay about my own origin and my family. The book is a lot more about my family um, and sort of like, what is the origin of a poet born of two ceramicists? Like, how do you exist in the world of poetry, in the world of birds? Because my mother primarily makes porcelain birds. Um, and, and the world of clay, when so many origin stories, including menstrual origin stories, are linked to both clay and birds. So there's a mm. little bit of menstruation that plays in there. And that, that book is, is like funnier. It's very much about how Manhattan Bird Alert on Twitter really got me through 2020. It was like, if I can't get out of this basement apartment, I'm going to look at every single bird in the ramble that people are taking photos of because I wish I were in Central Park right now. Um so there's some of that. There's a lot of like turning into birds, myths about birds, um, and sort of the relationship I have with my parents. And so that sort of continues this trajectory of myth and place, which in this follow-up to Red Memory, I dive deeper into family um, sort of imagining things about my mother's great-grandmother who was Blackfoot from middle Canada, what is now Canada, uh, who we don't have a lot of records about um, and sort of I'm very interested in what that is like in modern times to get back to this like time hopping of modern times of now that we're trying to reintroduce the buffalo which would have been her 
main food stores, Sacred Animal, and I live an hour away from the Buffalo Bill Museum. And I'm like, why is there a museum for this guy who's like pretty much solely responsible for the death of the American buffalo in order to starve Native Americans? Um, what is so even in of, that museum? <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to know. I don't need to know. Um, but family starts to play in there. A lot of funny poems about the moon and like coyote in discussion with the moon a lot. Um, still a lot of monarchy. And a lot of questions about capitalism. And I guess a lot of what I would call my travel writing. Um, I've been thinking a lot about travel writing. I just read uh, Feral um, by Emily Pennington. Um, I think it comes out comes out early February. And I had gone to school with her for a year. She was an actor. I costumed her in Ash Girl. That should have been a sign as an 18 year old that fairy tales were my jam. Um, <laughs> but she did a year of national park travel and um, was writing for Outside Magazine during each park. And this is sort of her memoir of the park experience and her relationship that fell apart and her mental health um, sort of in retrospect of that whole time and thinking about travel writing. And there used to be these jokes when I was in my early twenties, mostly with people I was dating that I, one day I was going to become a travel writer, which like, I don't know. I think you could argue that poets are always travel writers. Poets are always the original travel writer. The original, I mean, Basho walking poems orators taking the news from village to village yeah yeah it's more travel writing than that there's there isn't anything more travel writing than that um so yeah I think for me that evolves into these weird road trip essays that happened during early COVID um and so much of it is about questions of the American landscape in capitalism and like what are we doing (laughs) we have weeks to decide what to do to save the Colorado River and we're just like we're just going about our business here we are we're just recording a podcast what about the Colorado River um so that is that is getting close and uh then I'm working on this weird prose poem manuscript about running and menstruation and kidney dialysis and a lot of a lot of it is about post-row life so I guess you touched on the question of writers covering the same subject and the same sort of ideas in different different forms over and over and it occurs to me being a, a fellow child of artists, I think it's, I've, I'm sure I, I read an article about this somewhere. I can't remember where or what it was, but I've been thinking a lot about how for visual artists, it's sort of expected and um, supported and 
idealized that you would work on the same themes for a lifetime. It's how you learn. It's how you deepen the praxis. It's how you sort of make progress with with your questions. But then um, I find it interesting that with writers, <laughs> when we <laughs> when we um, publicly uh, acknowledge or or write about the same things or explore the same questions for a lifetime. It's not really supported. It's kind of seen as crazy, and it's often dismissed as as something that's not ideal, not not cute, not trendy, not like I don't know. Um, so I think I think that's really fascinating. Um, yeah, that's also weird to think about because if you think about the other end of the writer spectrum and you're looking at PhD academics or any PhD academic, you're like a visual artist, you stay in your niche. You're devoted mm -hmm. to your niche, you become an expert of it. But then again, you're probably not doing as much writing for popular audiences. So I don't know. But yeah, it is a weird thing of, um, I'm going to say of capitalism mm. or of our short attention spans that we are meant to move on from projects more quickly. Um, or find the new, fresh, interesting yeah. thing yes. versus deepen, as Martin Shaw would say, deepening into, into it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And that's someone who's who's always on to the fresh new thing while still on the old thing. Mm. Martin Shaw. Yeah. So we're always we're coming. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, I was just gonna say we've been talking for we've, about 90 minutes and I wanted to I want to sort of bring us to a a natural or a natural conclusion for this podcast episode um because i we could go on forever i think this could open up a whole nother conversation about subject matter as artists and the, the topics that shape our lives um but i hear you talking about two two additional books related to lunarchy menstruation and wellness and illness that you're working on um anything else present or pressing on your mind as we as we come to the conclusion here i realize that's a lot of pressure oh my gosh i was <laughs> like do i need to water the house plants it's like looking around Maybe. the house like oh my gosh so much pressure um that reminds me of the time that I killed one of your favorite houseplants with water. <laughs> killed it with water. Easiest way to kill a houseplant. Um, it's okay. When I was away for the holidays, several did not make it. But the cat is alive and that's all that matters. Mm. Um, I'm thinking a lot about softness and the role of softness, not versus hardness, but versus like living and experiencing life and scraping your knee and learning 
and the discomfort of learning and where the role of softness fits in both inside and outside the classroom. So, Mm. um, yeah, I guess we could end with a lovely sanitary napkin of a soft kitten in panties and think about softness. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ada. This um, this has been such a dream for my first podcast experience. I'm delighted to hear that. Um, before I turn off the record feature, um, you can find links to both of Amy's books and her website in the show notes. Um, check it out. There's a wealth of delightful, delicious, and soft materials in there i don't know where delicious factors in but we're just gonna go with it um gluten-free deliciousness that is um thanks for listening to the first episode of poet theater with amy bobeda if you like what you just heard connect with us via email or social media and please do check out some of the other dynamite fem on shows which include active activism literature for life Fine Cut with Allison, Fem on Film, and Fem on Fitness, and many more. Thanks first and foremost to Rhea Carrington, producer extraordinaire whose brilliant brain birthed this collective. Thanks to Tanya, Allison, and Jess, fellows in creation here at the Fem on Collective for collaborating in this digital haven. Big ups to the Comics in Motion crew for forging the path and establishing the fort. Special thanks to Tony Farina, host of the Indie Comic Spotlight, for instigating my podcast journey and for the origin story question. Shout out to Super Dummy Paul, host of multiple comics in motion shows and creator of our Pop Culture Collective newsletter. Subscribe to the Pop Culture Collective newsletter to unite with kindred patriarchy smashing pop culture geeks around the world. Share your questions, show notes, hot takes, guest suggestions, and comments with us at femonshow at gmail.com. That's one word, femonshow at gmail.com. You can find me, Ada McCartney, at www.aamccartney.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter at aa underscore McCartney. Until next time, 